Hi, I'm Anjali. And I'm Martha. And welcome to Public Health on Duty, where we talk to some of the most inspiring young minds in the Philippine public health system. Join us as we talk to our guests about their stories, learn about their career journey, and chat about their wins and everyday challenges. Our guest for today is a doctor by profession, but a long-time public health practitioner by practice. Ooh, and he's got all the goods when it comes to vaccines. Dr. Kim Fatehano. Hello, good afternoon. Catherine Ange and Martha. Hello, Kim Pat. Hello. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Who is Kim Pat Tejano? Wow. <laughs> well, I'm Kim, Dr. Kim Patrick Tejano. I'm a BS Public Health graduate uh, from the from University of the Philippines, Manila. And then I entered med school and became a licensed physician in 2017 and eventually joined the Department of Health in 2018. Ooh, <laughs> so you're a doctor but you're in public health. So I feel like yeah. somewhere out there, Asian parents have <laughs> felt a disturbance in the force because there is a doctor who is not practicing medicine, but is in public health. A doctor who is not in clinic, in yes. hospitals. So, so yeah. yeah. So I, I think the million dollar question is, why did he choose to go to public health after medical school? Well, basically, my first-hand community experiences when I was in college and in med school made me realize being a doctor is not just limited in the four corners of a clinic or in the hospital. And it made more sense to experience things rather than reading the hap- the things happening uh, as indicated in the articles or in the, in the different studies. And I think it always brings back the things that I've learned when I was in college and in med school, especially in our uh, community medicine subjects, um, emphasizing the importance of social determinants of health. So it's like saying, what are the benefits of giving them medicines and curing their diseases or their illnesses when they go, when they go back home, they're still in, the, in that condition that made them uh, that illness. So I guess that uh, learning made me realize that probably I can give, I can be more of a benefit to everyone when I join public health. Why um, go to the DOH after medical school? How did you stumble upon your first stint in the DOH? Well, I have friends that are working in the, that were working in the DOH when I, before I entered DOH. So I think that encouraged me that as an introvert, at least there's someone I know who is already in the DOH. And Basically, they made me realize that working in the UH is like the is like the epitome or something of public health in the country. So that's why I joined uh, and entered uh, the Department of Health. Yeah, well, actually, you know, Anjali, I was with Kim Pat um, when he entered the DOH. We were part of the Health Policy and Systems Research Fellowship of the yeah. Health Policy Development and Planning Bureau. So can you tell us more about that experience, Kim Pat? Yeah. So we were a health policy and systems research fellow. And I think our portfolio centered on health financing. So compared to my public health and medical um, studies, which focus more on service delivery, uh, we really focus more on health financing and someone... Uh, who does not know anything or have a minimal knowledge in health financing made me realize that 
hey, it's not just providing service to the people. It's there's there's a lot of things behind that, and one of which is improving health financing. And I guess mm-hmm. that's one of the things that I learned. Uh, yeah, from work. So you told us about your experience during the fellowship program. Fast forward, or two years after, um, you got transferred to the public health services team. Mm -hmm. And that was the time when COVID-19 was declared a pandemic and a lot of policies had to be released. So how was that experience? Yeah, I think there's a big shift. Knowing that as researchers, everything should be based on science, based on evidence. But when the pandemic started, there were a lot of uncertainties. So crafting a policy that would benefit all Filipinos would be very much difficult because you have limited evidence uh, to come up with those guidelines, with those policies. So there were were a lot of uncertainties. And, you know, (laughs) when crafting a guidelines or guidance for the Filipino to follow or for the various health health facilities to follow, you would just pray <laughs> <laughs> and worry at the same time that hopefully what the available evidence at that time would really um, help in the management and in the prevention of the pandemic. And so far, all policies that we released really help in our response to COVID-19. Oh, that's cool. I remember, um, I think it was like February of 2020. We were still in talks with WHO on what to yeah. do. I think like the first policies really on COVID were based off of H1N1. H1N1. H1N1 and the right? SARS. SARS-CoV-1. And the MERS-CoV. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this, it was yeah. really just a lot of kapa. Parang, we did this before. It might work again. <laughs> But we don't know for sure because of emerging science. But essentially, all of the world was like that, right? Yeah, that's yeah, true. Even the, the the World Health Organization are also we're also in uncertain. the dark. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's really in the dark during that time. Yeah, the whole world. Yes. So Kim Pat, you were working with USEC Crosette when the COVID nineteen pandemic was declared, mm-hmm. and a lot was required from your team during that time. How was the experience? What were the tasks that you were juggling and how did you manage them? Yeah, uh, well, I think everyone has really hard times during pandemic, not just the department, but every one of us. So I guess, I think uh, during the pandemic, working with the public health services team or the undersecretary and the spokesperson of the Department of Health was challenging yet fulfilling. So there were a lot of pressure not coming from my principal, from USEC, <laughs> but from the expectations of the people, uh, knowing that the Department of Health should be the lead in responding to the COVID-19. So there were a lot, a lot of pressure that what we release, what we tell to the public should be uh, correct or, you mean, you know, I mean, you know, uh, appropriate and would show appropriateness so that they would be able to accept whatever information, whatever guidance we tell them. And at the same time, uh, hearing uh, positive notes from the way uh, Yusek Reset uh, speaks, from the yeah. from the positive comments saying that the information and the way she delivers, it's for me, it's, it's also fulfilling. So 
I guess that's that's how it it felt like when I was still working with Isaac Rosette. You know, this wasn't our first rodeo either, right? Because right before the COVID-19 pandemic, the Philippines had a resurgence of polio. And you were also involved in the response there. So how would you compare the outbreak response then and managing the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah. I, like I like what I've said earlier, the COVID-19 has a lot of uncertainties. And comparing it to polio, which is already known for how many years, we have established uh, preventive measures. We have uh, we know how to manage polio confirmed cases. And it's much, not much easier, but it, com- relative to COVID-19, there are, it's, it's easier to control, I mean, to manage since vaccines are readily available. Um, there are already guidance from the different experts on how to manage when a case of a polio suddenly uh, appeared. So I guess that's how it differs when it comes to responding to COVID. Uh, yeah. So a lot of systems were already in place for polio, but mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that you still had difficulties when the outbreak um, emerged yeah. before before the pandemic. So what were these difficulties that you experienced? I, c- I guess one thing that really is was difficult was explaining to them that in 2000, we are already polio-free and yet come end of 2019, right. we have polio again. So it's difficult to explain that in 2000, what we eradicated was wild polio, whereas right. in 2019, what uh, what uh, re-emerged was a uh, type of polio and not the wild polio. So it's it's quite technical, but it's the circulating vaccine-derived polio virus <laughs> that re-emerged in 2019. And I guess... In other countries where they already eradicated polio, that's what uh, re-emerged in those countries as well. And that's a product of a low coverage for our polio vaccine. Yeah. But I guess for the benefit of our listeners, like, what is the difference of wild polio and the vaccine-derived polio. I mean, wild polio sounds like a wild Pokemon, like maybe a diglet that suddenly comes up. And I don't want a diglet. I was not looking for a diglet. I was looking for a Pikachu. But, you know, what is the difference? Well, wild polio virus is like the the virus itself. Uh, the God-created virus, I guess. So we have three, <laughs> I mean, three types. The polio 1, polio 2, and polio 3. Whereas the circulating vaccine-derived polio virus, it's a product of, um, because we have low vaccine coverage, those that were vaccinated still shed in their gastrointestinal system. So once they shed, um, there's still a chance for it to mutate and and become infective. So those who haven't received poliovirus um, might get infected with that uh, by, uh, vaccine-derived virus uh, if they, for example, did not wash hands properly. Because polio is transmitted via oral-fecal route. Uh-huh. So when you ingest oral, mouth, and fecal, when you poop. <laughs> so correct me if I'm wrong. Somebody with that vaccine-derived polio pooped in a waterway yeah. and then somebody dragged that water and then here we are with polio with that diglet that you didn't want. Yeah. So I guess polio does not only 
um, cover the vaccination, but the environmental and sanitation as well. Oh, if we have clean water to wash our hands, if we if parents teach their kids how to wash their hands prior to eating, and if you have clean water and safe water to drink, then polio might also not get transmitted to anyone. So during this time also, a lot of our public health programs have been stalled, including the National Immunization Program. How did your team ensure that these services are unhampered? Um, well, as you said earlier, it's not just the NIP, but almost all our essential health services were hampered during the pandemic. And I think one difficulty, since immunization is one of the cornerstones of public health, is really um, ensuring that our local governments, as well as our as the parents and the caregivers of the children, still ensure that they they know that vaccines, the routine vaccines are still accessible in the health centers. Yeah. So the message of um, routine vaccines are still available. I think that's one of the difficulties, especially that parents fear of going out of their house because of COVID-19. Yeah. So we have to release a guidance uh, that is adoptive to the, the, the pandemic situation. So... For example, uh, we temporarily halted uh, school-based immunization because mm, of our, right. obviously face-to-face classes were not uh, allowed during the, those years. Yeah. So we turned it into a community-based um, immunization. So health workers wearing PPEs, some of right. them go house to house in order to, uh, for the kids to have their uh, vaccines. Yeah. Also... I think one difficulty we had was in 2021 where we also rolled out the COVID-19 vaccination because yeah. the same set of health workers who used to provide the routine vaccines and other health uh, essential health services were also the ones doing the COVID-19 vaccination. So it's also difficult for us to tell them, aside from doing COVID-19, you should also do routine. I mean, yeah, <laughs> and we really owe a lot to the health workers yes, exactly. actually. They are the reasons why during the why we were able to, I guess, effectively respond to COVID-19 because of our healthcare workers in the ground. And not just the health workers, really, also the parents. Mm-hmm. That's true. I mean, them believing that vaccines mm-hmm. are working, right? And going out of their houses, you know, um, despite the risk, just so they can vaccinate their children. children. And I think that's also one of the messages I wanted to put out <laughs> to all <laughs> caregivers, and to all our mothers and uh, fathers and parents over there. Uh, we're starting to see the increase in the coverage of the routine vaccines. But, you know, um, the risk of getting vaccine preventable diseases is still there. So have your kids vaccinated on time. <laughs> Oh, so that the uh, effectiveness would be optimal, since you know science says that during this age, it is where the optimum effectiveness of vaccines get. Uh, I mean, effectiveness of the vaccines um, contribute to the health of your kids. And since most of the LGUs right now are under alert level one, yeah. I think it's a good opportunity for parents to go to the health centers and get mm-hmm. their children vaccinated. Yeah, and the vaccines are free, right? Yep, in the uh, yeah, 
most of the routine or the basic vaccines are free in our health centers. And actually, we're seeing a much improvement comparing to our data last year. So uh, partial data shows that in the first quarter of this year, comparing it to the first quarter coverage of last year, it actually doubled. Wow. So the LGUs and the parents are already, I believe, starting to get out and have their kids vaccinated already. So I guess that's a good start. Oh, okay. So with everything that you have experienced, do you feel like there are certain skills that are important for the public health field? Um, Personally, I guess there are two skills that... I think are very much important. So, unahin ko yung hard skill, which is, you already mentioned. I think when you enter the Department of Health, you should be at least uh, familiar with how Google Sheets or MS Excel work. <laughs> Kasi coming from a health education na background, we don't do, we're not familiar with, we, we're only familiar with the basic formulas or functions of Excel and Google Sheets. And when I entered DUH as a health planner, I mean, doing health planning, um, doing now on the procurement and managing finances. It's very important that you know um, a lot or at least familiarize yourself with various functions of MS, uh, what is that? MS Excel or Google Sheets. So that's one hard skill that I think um, everyone who is interested to join DUH should at least be familiar with. And I think the second skill, which is more of a soft skill, is relationship management. Mm, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> relationship. <laughs> I mean, work, uh, relationship and how you interact with your colleagues in your team, with mm. the members of the other divisions, with the with your whole bureau and with the whole department of health, as well as external relationships. I mean, for external professional relationships. <laughs> Just like, managing your Tinder profile, <laughs> curating your photos para you look interesting but also mysterious. Akala ko rin how to manage your jowa. <laughs> how, how, how to give her the best time even if you're so busy at work. <laughs> That's for another episode. True. <laughs> yeah, very important you maintain um, good relationship with your colleagues and your external stakeholders. So may it be from another national government agency, from your regional offices, and even, you know, well, in, when it comes to procurement, the your, how you relate to your suppliers, para may bidder pa rin yeah, ng mga yeah. commodities. So I guess those two important skills um, helped me a lot during, well, in my, in my stay here in the, the Department of Health. Right. So as a public health professional now, and as a doctor also, why do you think public health and medical school graduates should join public health? Well, public health talks about population. So merely by that fact alone, I guess it it makes you realize that there are a lot of things that should be done that can be done. And I think taking care of the whole population is personally much more fulfilling for me right. than taking care of individual patients. As your additional gift to the world, I mean, you've done a lot in terms of the vaccination program already, but you may have extra nuggets. So 
what do you think is something people need to know before stepping into public health? Like maybe some advice. I think when you want to enter public health and DOH in particular, I think you have to be open-minded. Open-minded. If yes, join can as DOH. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Since one of the skills the skills that I'm uh, applying right now were were the skills that I did not learn when I was in college or in med school. You know, health planning, procurement, accounting, and you know, those things <laughs> I did not learn from from med school and in college. And right now, I'm trying my best to be as efficient as others would expect me to be. Right. So you just have to be open-minded. And I think there's a... There's a value when your principals give you work that you think you can't do. Right. So just be open-minded and accept. And, you know, along the way, well, I'm grateful that my principals are, what do I say it? If, we need a if I say them, <laughs> If I say to them that I might not be able to do this job, okay, so okay, let's delegate to others. So they're flexible naman. So my principals are flexible when it comes to work. If and they always have like a feedback. We always have a, like a feedback session that yeah. okay, how's your work? Are you still I mean, are you still doing good? Yeah. So what do you want me to uh delegate to others para mabawasan ka ng workload? So things like that. You just yeah, open be open. Right. And always be hungry to learn, yeah. right? That's one of the reasons why I accepted my current role now because Again, like service delivery, we have laid down almost all policies that everyone is asking for. Right. But then there are still problems. So when analyzing it, you know, the root causes are beyond the policies and the things that I thought are the problems. So I accepted the role right. that I'm doing right now because I wanted to also uh, shift or to improve those aspects. Right. And and the and these are you know work or functions that not a lot of public health students or young professionals actually know mm-hmm. because these are usually what's happening behind the yeah. scenes. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I I don't think if you asked me what was public health when I was a student, I would be describing all of the accounting work, the procurement work <laughs> that Kimpat does. But these are very essential. Yes functions of public health that we just don't see. Okay, so thank you, Dr. Kim Pat Tejano. Oh, I'm sorry, I have to correct myself. Dr. Attorney <laughs> slash accountant. All of the above, Mr. Kim Pat Tejano. It was a wonderful time talking with you. Now, before we end, it's time for our picks from Dr. John Q. Wong's bookshelf. So, Martha, what book recommendation do you have for us today? Well, if you liked our discussion about vaccines in the pandemic, we'd like to invite everyone to read The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history by John M. Barry. This book zooms in on the events of the 1918 influenza pandemic in the United States or what the author calls the greatest medical holocaust in history. This, of course, is more commonly known as the Spanish flu, which affected 500 million people or one-third of the world's population at that time and claimed 50 million lives worldwide. So just to give you a better picture, maybe snap this 
into perspective, there have been over 550 million confirmed cases worldwide of COVID at the time we're recording this podcast, right? With around 6.3 million deaths. So, wow, that's like eight times more deadly than the COVID-19 pandemic. So imagine the scale of that. Right, right. And Doc Wong also graciously gave us another book recommendation, which is Vaccinated, One Man's Quest to Defeat the World's Deadliest Diseases by Dr. Paul A. Offit. Ooh, I've heard this one. This book talks about Maurice Hilleman and the history of vaccine development. So this guy created over, or maybe helped create over 40 vaccines. That's a weird way to say 40. (laughs) Sorry. So this guy helped create over 40 vaccines, including measles, mumps, rubella, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, meningitis, and pneumonia, paving the way for the modern age of vaccines. So woof, that's a whole lot of work to be done in a lifetime. I mean, I would probably say more than Dr. Kimpat. (laughs) But, you know, think of the millions of lives this guy saved, huh? Yes, so everyone get your vaccines now. Parents, children, everyone. People like Maurice Hillerman worked hard to get that shot in your arm. Yes, and we definitely, definitely don't want another Spanish flu or something to happen in our lifetime again. So ain't nobody got time for that. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Health on Duty. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Public Health on Duty is a joint production between Epimetrics Inc. and Big Baby Studios. Dr. John Q. Wong is our executive producer. Editing and hosting by Anjali Magdaraog and Martha De La Paz. Our producers are Abigail Tan and Antoinette Mendoza. Sound engineering and original theme music by PV Nicholas. You can find out more about Epimetrics at www.epimetrics.com.ph or at EpimetricsPH on Facebook and Instagram. This has been Martha. You can find me on Instagram at underscore call me Martha. And I'm Anjali. I am not on social media, but you can catch Martha and me on the next episode of Public Health on Duty. 